Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. Uh, I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to acquire users that will stick around. My guest today is the VP of Marketing and Growth at HubSpot. Uh, you might have heard of, uh, of this company before. Um, he has helped to add millions in additional traffic, in users, in revenues, in the bottom line. It's quite impressive. He's responsible for managing all of HubSpot global demand, acquiring new users, monetizing the freemium funnels, and leading the global marketing team. So it's quite a big, a big deal. He also has a, a podcast called The Growth uh, Too Long Didn't Read. Uh, you know, which is a slang in, in uh, kind of the Reddit world and all of that with uh, Scott Toosley. So, Kieran, super happy to have you on board. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show where we can kind of just uh, slag off marketers. It's going to be fun. It's an interesting purpose or an interesting uh, kind of thing to say, you know, acquiring users that will stick around. Uh, it seems like, I don't want to influence your answer, but there's a lot of people out there who tend to focus on getting new users and don't really give a fuck about getting them to stick around, right? So... What's your view on that about the difference between actually acquiring users and actually acquiring users that will stick around? What's the major difference in your opinion? Yeah, I think that some of that comes from right, the evolution towards, if you think about what's happening in tech today uh, and tech companies, a lot of it is evolving towards these kind of product-led companies. And so product-led companies are companies that allow you to use software prior to you ever having to pay them a dime. Or or a euro or a pound for all those people from different countries. And so if you think about that, right, you could just acquire users from Facebook and feel really good about yourself and then realize in a month or two months' time, all of those people have left and no one is paying you any money. And acquiring people that stick around basically means that we kind of call it, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty well known within kind of the kind of growth bullshit buzzword uh, space, like the North Star metric, which basically means what is the metric that tells you of the what is the metric that tells you about the value your product is delivering to customers? And so a good example of that in HubSpot, when I moved from building out the international business to building out the freemium business, our North Star metric was uh, weekly active teams, because we knew that if you were a team of two or more people using our free software, you would stick around for a lot longer because you had seen enough value to invite someone into that product and more than one person was now using that product on an ongoing basis. And so when you look at teams who would acquire from all of these different channels, the way we would measure them is how many weekly active teams are coming from those channels because that actually meant we were acquiring people who actually stuck around and started to use our product. I'm, I'm baffled by one thing though. I mean, I struggle to understand what else a company can be focused on but a good product and acquiring people. Like, I mean, what other type of led companies, how else can you be led but by the product? So how else would you be led into the product or? Can you be something else but product led as a company? Uh, well, I think product led is for companies that acquire through low touch acquisition models, right? So you could be a very sales-led company if you're an enterprise company and your first touch tends to be with that company through an outreach salesperson, right? So your, the first time you interact with that person is through a very high-touch motion. You talk to a sales rep, that sales rep has reached out to you. Product-led companies are differentiated in that they tend to have very low-touch models in that you can kind of 
go experience the whole product and learn about the product without ever having to talk to a human and only talk to a human when you maybe want to find out like why should I pay the additional money to unlock these features. And so it really just depends about how you discover the value of that company. And that's how I, that's how I would differentiate between like product-led, sales-led and some other types of motions. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, as soon as you describe that, I visualize this chart that you've probably seen, obviously, from, I think it's from Brian Balfour or another guy in the growth and VC kind of industry, you know, this chart where uh, you have the, um, the value of each of each customer that grows and then you have the mouse, which is the small value kind of user and yeah. then you go up and up and up, right? So who is that for? Who is and, that from? Do you remember? Uh, it's not from, I don't think that is from Brian, but I know the chart you're talking about when you have all the way to the elephant, right? And the elephant is like the kind of Salesforce model. Uh, it's actually a pretty great chart and I've gone completely blank, which isn't a good thing to do when you're trying to be a guest, good guest in a podcast. But it's okay. I'm blank all the time. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. It's, but if you go to, if you go to, so Brian is, I call him the, the, the growth father. He has one of the best blogs. It's Reforge. And he definitely has posted something around that, um, that chart. And so you could probably find out in his blog. So let, let's hope you're not going to blank on this and on the next few minutes, because that's actually your, your own thinking and methodology, right? So you have something <laughs> uh, that is quite interesting that you call the, the hearts and minds uh, strategy, uh, which actually, I don't know if you know that, but the Vietnamese uh, during the conflict that happened in the 1940s or 50s are using, <laughs> use the same strategy. So I don't know if you knew that <laughs> or not, but actually it's, it's a true fact. So they use that okay. against their own people to win their heart and their mind uh, so that they wouldn't uh, do a revolution. So just to okay. let you know, anyway, uh, you've broken all uh, traffic records over the last uh, few months. You've done a lot of great stuff at HubSpot. And I think what is interesting here is trying to deconstruct that so that people listening to this podcast right now can take away and can do it themselves, right? So you, we right. might not touch on all of the things you've done, but we might at least try uh, on the on, on this. So, before we, we touch on how to acquire users that stick around and how to apply this, this strategy, can you describe briefly what you mean by hearts and minds? Why is it important to have both? Yeah, I definitely do not mean that we are going to try to stop people in different countries revolting. So we, we may have hearts and minds, and this is something that um, comes from our CMO, Kip. right? He, um, and we kind of evangelize this within the company in that if you think about content marketing today, like where, where are we today? Well, the cost of content marketing has never been higher. And if you look at the past five years, actually the cost to acquire through content marketing has grown faster than any other medium, albeit that it's still very, it's still a lot cheaper to acquire through content than it is through something paid, but it's actually growing faster, right? The cost to acquire customers actually growing faster um, for content marketing. And that's just because budgets have shifted into people publishing content. There's a lot more competition and people are up in their game, right? So like, this is a really great example that people have migrated to podcasts and some people do well and other people do not do well. Uh, and that happens across all the kind of content you create. And so what you're gonna start to see is a divergence in two kind of buckets of content you can create. And so you can create content that wins the minds of business leaders. So you think about your content strategy, it's to win the hearts and minds of whatever that audience may be, right? So for HubSpot, we want to win the hearts and minds of business leaders within small, medium, and enterprise type companies who need help with software marketing, customer service, or, or uh, sales. And so it, to do that, when you think about how do you win the minds of those people, it's generally the content you create is very tactical, right? It teaches them how to do something. It's informational. It answers your question. And it's kind of created with promotion first. And so 
as an example for most companies, that's how do I, I would only create content if there is available traffic for certain keywords, right? So I would map every single post to a key phrase and I would only create that content if there was actually traffic available for, for, that, for that question that people are asking. And so in that, in that kind of bucket of winning the minds of people, it's very search first, right? You are creating content with a very first search um, uh, approach. And doing that means that you invest a lot more in every single post. You commit a lot more to the content you create, right? Every single post is its own acquisition engine and you create an entire promotion plan for that post to compete in the Google search pages with uh, all of the other content that's created on that topic. And it might not be search. I think typically it is, but it could be other mediums or platforms that you want to acquire traffic from. And in that, like what, an interesting thing, the way that, like there's a guy called Jimmy Daly who runs content marketing for uh, ages called Animals. And he had a really good, he had a really good post about why your blog should not be a publication, right? You shouldn't really care about if your blog stands out. You shouldn't care if your blog's memorable. You should just create this thing called silent traffic. That is kind of very similar to one in the minds in that each post itself is not trying to build your brand. It's just trying to acquire people, grow an audience and convert them into something. And so we parked that and I can go into what we did in HubSpot. And that's one of the things that's helped us to grow our traffic even faster than we were growing. And then in, within the hearts is like, how do I create editorial content? How do I create content that helps to evangelize my brand, to attract people towards me that feel the same way that I do, that share my mission, that are passionate about the problems that I'm solving? And I think what you're going to start to see is a divergence between those two types of content because the people who are good at creating one type of those content are not necessarily the people who are very good at creating the other type of content. And so brands may start to pick and choose where they invest their, their money to be able to compete in content marketing today. So that's a shift. Yeah, you are starting to anticipate is something that you start to see. To summarize what you said, so there's the, the, the minds and the hearts. The minds, we talked about it quite a lot on this podcast and the last few episodes, actually, in terms of how do you pick what people are actually searching for. Therefore, how do you read their mind so that, you know, when they search on Google, they have something, they have a problem, they're actually searching for it. How do you answer that very quickly? So let's say I want to know more about how to create a podcast from scratch. I Google that. If you're the first result to talk exactly on the blog post, how to solve this problem, how to do it step by step, then you're winning their minds because that's what they're looking for. Winning their, winning their heart is, I would say, even it's where the science turns into an art in a sense, because for SEO-driven PCs, as you mentioned, driven by Google, it seems quite, I wouldn't say easy, but there is a recipe for it. You search for it, you, you, you select the right keywords, you, you prioritize them based on a few factors, you have a list, roughly. I know I'm oversimplifying and you'll be yeah. able to contradict me on this. And then the, the, the heart seems to be more like an art or more journalism-driven story-based, perhaps, or things that are based more on like the emotional connection you can have with with um, with your readers, such as maybe admitting failures or being very transparent about certain things, about saying this is how we work, showing the behind the scenes, right? Is that yep. is that a good summary? Yeah, that's a good summary. I think on the um, I think on the mind side of things, and that when people because people have this like feeling of complete revulsion for SEO and content, right? They're like, oh, what he means is. You have win the minds, you plaster keywords and content, and you do this uh, weird voodoo magic. You get around a fire and start to cast black magic spells, and something happens and you acquire traffic. And actually, good SEO today, the way it's done today, actually makes content better. And so there's still creativity in the type of content you create to win minds, but you're creating it in a very purposeful way, crafted around the 
uh, thing that someone is actually searching for. So you've established what someone is searching for. So you know there's available what we, and if you actually think about what you should look at, so typically people will look at volume of traffic available for a keyword. And we can get into this as well. It's a slight tangent, but actually what you should look at is volume of search clicks available for that for that keyword. So there's no longer there's no, there's no point any uh, look there's no point looking at volume because with featured snippets today, the amount of volume available for keyword has actually gone down because most people can retrieve the answer to their query without ever having to click on your website. Can you define what a uh, featured snippet is briefly? Yeah, so a feature snippet is basically when you search for Google and you search for like what is in my marketing, you will see there's a box at the top of the page that answers that query for you. So Google in their, you know, uh, hypocritical approach to everything who would penalize people for scraping content and having it on their website because I used to do that uh, and penalized all my sites. What they do is they scrape other people's content, put it on their website and then tell you the answer without ever you have goes without you needing to ever go to that website. So for example, if you search for what is about marketing, it may not be like this today. You would see Google has scraped content from our website and they have answered that question, so you don't need to actually click through to our website to learn more about inbound marketing. However, I will say that the click-through rate of content that appears in that um, feature snippet box is way higher than anything else. So it still does send you a lot of traffic. Right. So let's do a little exercise together, because I think that's what listeners care about the most. Let's say you are hired as a consultant for a company has a decent product, their NPS, their net promoter score is quite high. Like that product is good. There's not, the problem is not there. They hire you to say, okay, we need more users. We need to find ways to do more users. And you've identified that what you described here, the, the hearts and the minds is probably the right thing to go about for them. So what is the first step? How do you go about setting that up for them? Starting from step number one. So if I'm in a smaller company, I think this is the trade-off you need to make. And it's the conversation that a lot of people have today is like, when do you invest in brand, right? And my hearts is quite brand focused and it's a very long-term investment. So a lot of smaller companies need to live quarter by quarter, right? It's great to create a brand, but if you don't see the long, if you don't see the impact of that until you know, a longer period of time, you may, you may not make your numbers, you may, may not maybe to actually stay within business. So I think a lot of companies skew towards how do we win the minds of people? How do we create instant traffic and conversions for our company? So I think if you were doing that, you would start to build out like what we have built out, which we call our search editorial calendar, which is basically every topic that is relevant to our different personas, buying personas, and then we break each topic down into every single keyword variation that is related to that topic. And then we will look to see how competitive are those different topics in aggregate, how much available traffic is available in aggregate, how much, how relevant are they to our audience? Some, if you do some sort of scorecard from one to five, five being really relevant, one being mm, kind of relevant, but may not convert that high. You can start to prioritize the initial topics that you want to spend your time on. Because again, if you're a smaller company, you probably have less people to create content for you. So you need to invest in a couple of topics and expand from there. Where most people go wrong is they try to peanut butter everything, right? They do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and they're not really successful in any one thing. And they start to get frustrated and switch all their money back from content marketing into paid ads because they get a dopamine hit and makes them feel really good because I can 
put this 10 bucks in here and get a click here and get a conversion and I've done my job. And so that's, that's where I would start, right? So I think you have to start with how many resources, what are, like realistically, what can I do because of my available resources and what are the best things I want to invest my time in? And I probably want to invest time in things that I can show that there's some level of success over a two or three month period because my CEO is going to start wondering why I'm tapping away in this keyboard or creating all this content and he's not seeing any type of meaningful demand for his product. So we, we talked to, we talked about this exact method with Ryan Bonici from G2 Crowd. As, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, you were for us, but before, uh, we also talked, right, yeah, Ryan, Ryan's a good friend. <laughs> uh, we talked to Nat Eliasson, who also talked about this type of uh, principle and also from, uh, with, um, the CMO of, of HREF. But so folks can listen to those episodes to get a lot of details. I'm also super interested in how, how you do the two, the house and the minds, and we're going to go after that, but. Briefly, can you describe then when you create this search editorial calendar beyond, uh, as you said, the volume, difficulty and the relevance, which are the three things that we also mentioned in the past, do you feel there is anything else that is absolutely necessary for people to understand uh, when they do that? And I think you started to mention that with the topics. So you would look at things in aggregate and not row by row in Excel, right? You would look at right. the themes. And, and if you get started with a company, you would probably pick one or two themes and just go for them. Exactly. I would always, you always think of it today, like there is no point thinking at a keyword level. It's too granular. You want to think of a topic, right? A topic level. And Google, for the most part, wants to know, wants to surface up companies who are, who have valuable content on a topic, not just like this one post that was about this one thing that's not related to any of the other things you've created content on. And so it puts more emphasis on the fact that, hey, this website is an authority and all of these different things that are related to this topic. And actually, if you one of the best examples of a company who did that, that people will know of is Pinterest. So Pinterest is an interesting company because they've gone through many different uh, channels that they've managed to grow from. So they used to, they used to go through Facebook and Facebook shut them down, but they had actually pivoted to Google. And one of the things they've done, you will see Pinterest used to dominate the search pages is they aggregated all of the user-generated content into like these topics, right? And they they had huge topic pages for different keywords, very, very competitive keywords. And so that's because Google wants to understand that you are a site that is an authority on this actual topic, not just like one part of it. And so you want to aggregate everything into topics and even look at your data on a, on a topic basis, right? Like how successful is this topic in helping us to acquire traffic? How successful is this topic helping us to actually convert people into whatever the main thing may be for your, for your company. So you would select, you start with this business, you select two to three core, core topics. Uh, to go back to one example before I drill down a bit more, like Pinterest does that. I know that Canva does that as well quite a lot. So they would, yep. like, if you search for resume templates, boom, they'll appear number one. And what they do is they, it's, it's a mix, I believe, of the user-generated content. So content that was created by the users and content created by the company. And they merge them to give you the top 50 resume templates you can use today. And the good thing about this as an acquisition strategy, as a loop, is that you go, you search on that, you go on Google, you click on the resume template, and it basically makes you use the product already, and you sign up after. And it's kind of yes. a loop that just keeps on fulfilling itself. Yeah, so Canva are a great example. So Canva, actually a com company that started to growth just through word of mouth, right? So they grew because they had a great product, solved their problem in a way that no one else was solving it. And then they layered on search. So you find that, that most companies who grow into big companies, 
growth through a couple of channels. Uh, it's another kind of Brian Balfour quote that I'll throw out there, but it's called the growth power law and that most big companies have established growth through one or two channels. And Canva are a really good example because they grew through word of mouth and then later on search. And the, the tactic you're talking about is actually a phenomenal tactic that they have a whole team dedicated to building out templates that people search for. And those templates then exist within their product. So then you can easily create a poster template or a poster uh, whatever the main thing that you're searching for. Now, the cool thing, is, it's, it's a very cool tactic. They've executed very well. Their product also fits to Google very well, right? Because it has such a broad set of use cases that they can fulfill those use cases through their product. Not every company can actually do that. So there is this level of like your product fits with certain channels and then it's just how well you execute within those channels. Because Canva is basically a series of tools, mini tools. You can basically use Canva for so many use cases, resume, posters, uh, certificate. I mean, I can think of like hundreds of things. So as you said, then your top of the funnel is easily filled, meaning a lot of people would search for all of those things. And you are the answer to that. For HubSpot, you had to create free tools to actually do that because sometimes your tools are so narrow. Obviously, you sell one thing, you do it very well, like, I don't know, email signature that you have to create other stuff around it to, to, to bring demand, to bring more people in, right? Um, yeah. So you mentioned those two or three topics. You mentioned those three themes to prioritize. So apart from the criteria that you mentioned, the volume or the, the, the actual number of clicks you might get, the difficulty and relevance, is there any other way you would uh, recommend people to, to pick their, their, their topics? Like how do, should they look at, okay, this is the number one topic we need to go after? Yeah, I think some of it is, I think, I think that like a lot of these things you want to, people today want to kind of reduce down to a scientific equation. You can actually go, go through th that process, right? Cause you can use something like available traffic. Uh, you can model out the conversion rate you think you will get from a, a, a certain topic. If you have any type of data on that, on that, that exists, like you can kind of model out, well, if we choose this topic, this is the amount of traffic that we will start to acquire over a 12 month period. This is the amount of conversions we will acquire over a 12 month period. And you can actually model that out in terms of how that, how that sustains your growth. And I think that's one of the way you can do it. But the thing that most people miss is how competitive is that, right? Like you, you get a company in retail that will go, okay, we want to rank for like women's dresses because that's got a lot of volume. And if I model that out, that's going to equate to millions of dollars of revenue a year. And the thing they haven't done is go, well, there's 60 billion other competing pages for, for those different keywords. And so the thing that you want to be really good at is understanding how competitive those topics are, like who are the companies that are own the search results pages for those topics? And can you realistically create content that is better than them and, or that's as good and that you have a better promotion plan? And that's the world we live in today, right? And it's difficult to think that way because sometimes you, you look at a lot of things and you're like, oh shit, we're kind of screwed because a lot of things are owned by Amazon. And some of that also is just experience, right? Understanding that is there's no kind of like one scientific uh, equation that helps you understand this topic is better than that topic. Some of it is just experience. Like I understand that I can actually do these things better than what exists and I know I can actually uh, acquire traffic on them. So can I just ask you to pick a tech product of any kind, just something that comes like this outside of HubSpot, just as an example. Let's go for, cause I spent all of my life on, uh, on video. Let's talk, let's talk about, uh, video conferencing. It's probably going to be a really bad selection cause it's a boring space. <laughs> really, that's, that's when, that's why it becomes challenging. So let's say you consult for this video conferencing company. They are mm -hmm. competing with Zoom. They are competing with Skype and, and all of that. 
let's say you have a topic like remote conferencing or, or remote work, maybe something like that. You identify that this is a topic that you might want to go after. Now, from your experience, I tell you that what are you picturing right now? Like what type of things will you do right now in front of your computer to check whether this is competitive, whether you have a feel actually we can go after that? Yeah, so you can so you can do it in a couple of ways because you can just use and you had it sounds like you've had uh, this maybe the CMO of Arefs on or someone from Arefs so Tim Solo you can yes Tim so you can you can basically get some of this data right through tools like Arefs that actually give you competitive data and tell you try to tell you how competitive the keywords keyword uh, pages are for different key phrases so you can trust those things and say that um okay I like I'm gonna just use what they tell me to stack rank. Like if you if you search for all of the keywords around a topic, add them into a spreadsheet, and then another sheet, aggregate them all up and use the average of the the competition rating that one of these tools give you, either Moz, ARS. I don't want to uh, exclude the all all of the different tools. You can use the average and say I'm gonna stack rank that. However, there is definitely part of Dependent upon like how complex your market is, there is part of this that if you just have SEO experience, you're going to be better at it, right? Because what what I would tend to do would be look at some of the sites that actually perform very well for this topic and start to actually explore like their backlinks, right? How many how many backlinks have they? What are the quality of their backlinks? What kind of things are they doing to acquire those backlinks that I can either replicate or do better? And so you start to build up the parts of like, where are these people strong? Where are they weak? And how can you be as good at them in the things that they're strong at that matter? Because some of them may not matter. And how can you be better at the places that they're weak at? How do you check if, if this is a weak, if this is a topic that has been covered in a weak way by a direct competitor, let's say? So you can look at things like, you know, the overall competition for that is like medium and the people who are ranking the content is not like I could just create better content than it. And there's a really, you know, if you I'll throw out like the examples that everyone uses, but if you, if you think of someone like Brian Dean, right, who's, who's, uh, again, you've probably talked to Brian. <laughs> no, actually I haven't. Have you not? Okay. So, so yeah, so Brian's like, so Brian's really good at this, right? So he, he would not classify himself. I think he would tell you it's not a technical SEO, but he manages just to pick a competitive keyword and creates better content than the thing that exists. And better content could just be, Hey, it's just better content, right? It just serves the user in a better way. It's more informational. It teaches that person how to do that thing better than the existing content. You can look at their results pages and start to see that actually Google wants more video images and you can make your content a more multimedia experience. So you can start to do different formats that other people have not done and invest in those things quicker than anyone else is investing in them. You can have a better, uh, you can look through them and you can say, oh, like the, the, pe the people who are linking to these people are just like bloggers, right? They're just like acquiring links through being cited by other blogs and they have no real specific strategy on how they can acquire links. And I know that I can acquire links from this partnership model I have, or I know I can acquire links from this affiliate model I have. And there are some variations of acquiring links through affiliates that actually would be frowned upon by Google. So do not take that with a grain of salt. Uh, and, and speaking, this is speaking, this is someone who has most of his sites to index back in the day. So I know about <laughs> these things. You, uh, you like hat marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through every, every sketchy part of marketing you can go through. So, uh, and come to their light side. So 
so yeah, you can start to just pull like that's why I love search and it's why I love coming into marketing through through SEO because you can pull apart someone's entire strategy and start to isolate the parts that you can beat them on, right? And it could just be, I'm going to create better content, more creative content, a better multimedia experience. It could be that, hey, they have no real clear path to require links at scale. And I actually can do that. And so that I'm going to attack them on those fronts. So how do you, I have so many things to say. Uh, let me let me start with the, the first one. So the first thing you mentioned is is about like identifying things that you're better at or that they are weak at. From, from my small experience, uh, other stuff might include all of the articles you see are quite old, outdated, they look like shit, or they're quite short <laughs> and you feel like they've been written by, you know, definitely a freelancer who didn't really care about anything, or there is no example. Sometimes what I found is this is, this is kind of the one thing that seems to happen quite a lot is, okay, they are covering the topic quite well, but I, I, there's no example or case study. There's no tangible, give me an example. So all of those things and plus the things you mentioned seems to be a good indicator of knowing, hmm. It, I have a feel like if we write this, we'll do better, right? So that's that's kind of what you mentioned. But the second thing is even more interesting because now I think we are going quite advanced and I don't even know the answer to this question, by the way. I'm really actually very curious. How do you figure out whether someone, another company has a proper outreach or backlinking strategy or whether they don't? Yeah, this comes through experience. You will just know, right? You can see if there is, let's, let's assume that, uh, let me try to throw out something that's not going to get you de-indexed. Let's assume that there's, you can see a company that have had some sort of competition, right? Or that they've created some sort of tool. And that tool has, like it's a, some sort of, I don't know, conversational pop-up or some sort of like easy way to show video on your website. And they've created that tool with some sort of brand and in the footer of that tool. And many people are using that tool and that tool links back to that website, which I don't think in this today, I think most people know not to link back with like a very specific keyword, what you would do is actually create some sort of mechanism that would uh, change the keyword each time it was embedded. So you wouldn't leave some sort of weird uh, trace of just like millions of links with the exact same keyword. And so if, let's say there's a company that's done that. You go, ah, shit, that company know what they're doing. They have specifically created this thing to not only show their brand, like get their brand on more sites or their tools on more sites, but they have credit with the knowledge of how they can acquire links back to their website versus looking at a company and they're like all of their all of their links are you know just third party links where people are referencing their content naturally there's no real specific strategy that they've put in place to actually get people to link to their content and you know it's hard there's no there's no way that I can answer that what I'd say in that there's some level of experience that it takes to be able to pull apart a backlink profile and be able to tell whether that is being manufactured and it's beatable or not. So like could another way be, for example, when you look at their articles and you really look at the structure and see whether it's SEO driven or whether it's been written just almost randomly, could it be like looking at the headlines and see whether it has been optimized clearly for longer tail keywords related to the topic? Yeah, I think so you can look at, I don't, you can look at the content and say, hey, they have a very clear, specific keyword focus, like on the content, but they've done it in a way that's very natural. They know what they're doing, right? Because you'll see the companies that don't know what they're doing because their, comp- their content is garbage and everything is the keyword. And for most people, they understand that Google don't need you to do that today, right? Google are pretty good at understanding what the 
content is bad and they don't need you to plaster the keyword everywhere. But you can start look at the content and go, okay, like these people have optimized this in a pretty professional way. They know the content grouping that they're going for. They've also created the content with the user in mind, right? It has a mixture of a video and it has like imagery and it has all of the things you should have because that's what the intent is behind the search. And intent is something that's really important when you start to establish or determine how you design your content. We can talk about that if you want. So you would start with the on-page, right? And for the most part, if you were ranking in the top 10 of Google for in any way semi-medium, like any way competitive keyword, you would suspect that most of those people have pretty great content or there's like some level of expertise has gone into creating that content. And a lot of it still does come back as much as I think Google probably don't want it to. I think a lot of it is still dependent upon the links you have, that the links you manage to acquire. And we've certainly found that as well. It's like even the amount of traffic we get, we still see a lot of upside by being able to create links towards specific content. And that's that's a kind of the controversial, or should I say something that we talked about in the podcast before and that it seems like people are still surprised by it. Because backlinking is basically the probably one of the only way for Google to know for sure that a piece is valuable because it's it's based on relationships. It's based on people linking to other people. It's based on the signal that says, Kieran likes my shit, so therefore he yep. links to it. Yeah, like Google, how, like of all the amazing things Google can do, which they can get up in the morning and drive your car without you having to do anything and all this kind of stuff, it's still impossible for them to go, hey, this page is better than this page if each of those pages has zero links, right? Or like, it, unless there's some indication of, that someone found that valuable, they're still going to be dependent upon links. And they still have, there's other signals that they, and I'm definitely not the, the person who knows every single signal they're, they're using, but things like, are people clicking through on that page and then clicking straight back to the, to the search results page? I'm sure people have, on your podcast have gone through the different signals they can use. So they are using a lot of different signals, but I still think links is a very strong signal that they actually depend depend on. But let's go back to, I mean, to the principles, right? We're not trying to hack Google here. It's all about people and how they react. So like, this is why I mentioned link, the backlinks is just a, 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 a consequence of relationships and value. It's just a, a transfer of value. You link to something because you like it. Very much like when you stay on a page, Google will know that now via Google Analytics and all of that. They know how long you stay, so therefore they can interpret well. They stay a bit yeah, exactly. more, so they might they might like it. I wouldn't be surprised in the future that Google start to get some proper qualitative signal out there, such as feedback directly within the page or directly within the results um, as a signal as well to say whether this is something that people like or not. But anyway, it all goes back to people. So we're not trying to hack Google here. It's more about trying to understand what people search for and how to provide the best experience but also to compete, yep. right? Because you need, you, we are in a market and you need to compete against uh, one another. So, okay, so we are talking about the minds quite a lot. We talked about how to identify topics based on the, the basics, should I say, of volume, difficulty, relevance, but also, as you mentioned, kind of the flair and the experience, um, the almost a French flair, should I say, towards the, um, towards the, like what topics to pick. Um, now, let's say we have those topics we probably won't have time to talk about how to actually get started and write those articles. This is probably not as interesting as the other topic I wanted to talk about, which is the heart. So you would start with this company that is struggling a bit with their uh, content, uh, struggling with uh, acquiring users that will stick around and you implement this plan for the next two or three months, as you said, right? So it sounds like you're not touching hearts whatsoever yet. 
we have it separated in HubSpot. We have a content uh, that is specifically acquired. Like there are teams that create content to win the minds uh, of people and they have a very specific process to do that. And then we have a different content team that are, we call, that are more creating content on editorial. So like we think about what are the themes that are very, or what are the themes that we want to create content around related to the mission of HubSpot, related to how products can help execute on that mission or like make that mission part of every other company's uh, mission that we sell our software to. And so that, that team are creating content in a very different way. So they're kind of like in HubSpot, they're kind of separate teams. Uh, now there's, 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 I want to make sure in case someone from listens to this and I'm telling this incorrectly, there's nuances to this. So like our blogging team, for example, are a team that create a lot of content to acquire the minds of business leaders, but also have some content on the blogs that are purely heart focused content. So how do you, would you actually create this, this type of content like to win, to win the hearts of people for this fictitious company we are working with? Like, and why would you do it? Yeah, I think that you certainly have to invest in your brand, right? And that's the, that's the balance that I think is difficult for people to strike. And if you, to, to, to find, and if you put me in a room with three companies who are at different stages within their growth cycle and at very different resources and they, and ask me to answer the question of how do they find the perfect balance to know like they should create this much of their time on mine and this much on on heart. It's a very difficult one to to answer because the challenge with heart content and content that generally invests in your brand is the effects of that are very like the law of serendipity, right? Like you kind of understand that there's going to be good things happening, but it's very difficult to put your finger on how to measure those things. And so we have ways that we try to measure the good things happening from the investments that we make in brand. And like so what? would I, would I uh, so like there, uh, there's about, let me try to, there's about 50, but like some of the, some of the things you can look at are, are people looking for my product uh, more over time, right? So like direct traffic, Google trends, are people mentioning us is the pe- number of people mentioning us increasing over time? And you can have tools that tell you how much you're getting mentioned or getting cited, like getting mentioned by websites or getting mentioned by social tools. Uh, you can look at press mentions and placements. Um, again, none of these are like, wow, this is game changing, right? Because people have been trying to solve the problem of how to measure brand for forever. But you can, you can, the, you, the way I think about trying to measure brand is you can have indicators that this stuff is working. There's no like one metric, but the indicators overall help to tell the story that the investments we're making are paying off. And there's not just, then there's just the things that like people, when someone reaches, if you have an outbound sales team or you have a sales team that are reaching out to people who are in your database, more and more people have actually heard your name. Oh, uh, yeah, I read your blog. Oh, I listen to your podcast. Oh, I've seen that video from this person. And so there's just like ad hoc stuff where you can see good things happening over over time. If you had to pick, like with this fictitious company, once again, let's say you've you've really nailed the search the search base, the the the, the mind based kind of content. You've really nailed the editorial 
like calendar for that. You're publishing articles, it gets picked up on Google, you start generating leads. Now you know that the brand is the next thing. Like if you had to pick the first few things you would do for this company when it comes to the, the heart, like the, the, the brand type of content, what would you go after? Like what type of things seem to be working? Not always, but seem to really be, you know, something that you must do. Uh, so I can give you one of the things that I think matters a lot, but is not applicable to every company. So it may not be relevant to everyone. So it's probably not the best answer, but let me just give you that answer and you can tell me if it sucks. I think it's always good to pick a fight or an enemy, right? So I think, you know, if I just use HubSpot story, we picked outbound marketing as an enemy, right? So we were able to win the hearts of people who were really frustrated about having to pay for billboards and do all of this type of marketing. And I like, and no one really talking about it, but then you start talking about it, like, ah, oh, shit, yeah, I hate having to do that. And I hate the fact that people hate marketers, just like your podcast says. And I hate the fact that people see me as a sleazy asshole who is going to just like spam you, you to death. Oh, I feel like I want to be a better person. I want to be a better marketer. And then you get people like passionate about the mission that you have. And I think you look at a lot of companies they usually have like a very like clear enemy, like Salesforce, I worked at as well, right? They had a very clear enemy, right? And I think that's a very easy way then to draw people towards you because you're not like just safe. You're, some people probably think you suck because they actually don't agree with you. But yeah, to begin with having certain people who are very passionate because there's certain people who are very passionate about that, it's going to be better than just being kind of like, not relevant for anything. So I do think that's definitely one of the first things I would do if I were starting in a fictitious company that had a product that we wanted to to grow. So I'm curious now because I, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously it's audio only. You didn't see my reaction to Kieran's answer, but I'm quite happy to hear that. And I'll tell you why in a few in a few seconds. But you said that it wouldn't necessarily apply to every company. Why why not? Honestly, I just can't think of every single product in the world, but I. There may, there may be companies that just don't have a clear enemy. I don't know. Like there's a, there's so many industries that someone on this podcast might be saying like, you know, I have no, like, I don't want everyone to go ahead and start like dissing everyone else in their industry. I just mean that, uh, you know, in some cases it may not, it may be, it's not, maybe not as easy to pick that enemy. Like in HubSpot's case, our tools helped you to do marketing in a different way. So it's easy to pick on traditional marketing. And for other companies, it may be as easy as that. For other companies, they may have to be more creative and inventive about how they actually choose their enemy. There is enemy and enemy as well. I mean, we're not saying to literally go on war and insult yeah. people because they're not doing this the right way, but it's more about picking the audience who believe in what you believe in and telling the others who don't believe in the same thing to say, hey, maybe it's not for you. And exactly. I think the reason why companies struggle to do that is because it's risky, because it takes some guts, because it's a risk that could pay off big time or could actually uh, mean that they, you lose money. But definitely from my small experience, as any time we've done that for small projects, for podcasts, for anything, it just works because it strikes a chord with people. People either agree or disagree, but they can't be neutral. And this is kind of the enemy, isn't it? If, if people are neutral, then their emotions are not super high. You can't really win their heart. They're just going to be like, it's yet another tool. It's yet another company. And right. testament to HubSpot for having done that incredibly well to like have position creating a new category in the market picking an enemy also nailing the search like nailing content marketing years before most companies nailed it i mean hostpot did a lot of things right so i mean i'm glad to be speaking to you on this but 
I think this podcast is an example of this strategy. It's obviously not the same risk whatsoever, just a small podcast, but it's an example that, that works. People remember it. People either hate it or love it, but I don't have, I don't receive a lot of people to, who say, I just like it a, a little bit, you know? It's yeah, yeah. You have extreme reactions. And so like an easy way for someone to think about that for their own market is like, how does your product make someone's life better, right? Because that's like in any way, it's trying to make someone's life better in some way. And prior to your product, what was their frustrations that you were solving? And then try to pick on the frustrations, right? And I think that's one of the ways you can probably come up with something that you can get a certain number of people to feel passionately about. So we don't have a lot of minutes left. I still want to challenge you on something. Let's go back to the example of the video conferencing tool, right? Let's yep. let's let's just create this kind of enemy together. Just try to identify one briefly. So in the video conferencing world, I can think of a few things that pisses me off, but I want you to 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 come come up with something an enemy on the fly. What would you do? Top of my head, and maybe I'm not at my most creative. I like I think an easy one to pick is, and this is too easy, is the office. Right. Cause I would probably pick like, oh my, like going to the office and I like my whole creative would be all the things you used to, your dad or your granddad used to do that you think are archaic now that you just think, why the hell did we used to do those things? And I would frame going to the office and being like the fact that we ever thought going to an office with hundreds of other people and that we were, could be productive was a good use of our time. The fact that we think being stuck in traffic for 30, 40 minutes a day is a good use of our time. And so I would try to pick on the office and I would categorize myself into making the world a better place by allowing people to work wherever they want to work. But thanks for, for, for doing this. I know it, it's late. We are both in Dublin and I know it's a bit late for both of us. Uh, but at least uh, I was thinking when I was thinking of video conferencing, I was thinking of the, the fact that they are all slow, yes. like clunky and shit. And I would come up with a product that is like light and that works and I would just take the piece out of all of the others who are just so slow and I will play on that thing. Like we are oh, so, the fast one. Yeah, if you're doing that, Google Hangouts is your enemy because Google anim- Hangouts is continually terrible. There you go. Or even Skype. We are on Skype right now. It actually works yeah. for me, but most people hate it, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate it. So that would have been a good enemy as well. <laughs> um, but you see, uh, straight away, there is reaction to it, there is emotion. And this takes some guts to do, but I would, I mean, Kieran is, is an expert, I'm not, but he, he said it, I didn't, uh, which is really the, like picking an enemy in order to win, to win heart uh, of the people is definitely a strategy that I would encourage people to take. Uh, Kieran, thanks so much for taking the time to go through the step-by-step with me. I know it's not easy to be quizzed that much, but uh, you said something, I have a few questions that I ask at the end of the podcast uh, all the yep. time, but you said something that I'm just curious about. You said that you basically use all the black hat marketing tactics that one could, could use in, in your career. Can you just uh, mention a few that you used um, yep. that used to work? Yeah. Let me go through uh, the murky days of Kieran Flanagan when I first got into marketing. So like just to go through my background was a developer. So I always looked for shortcuts because I was a developer, right? So that was, I didn't really actually know marketing. I thought I was a marketer, but I really knew nothing about marketing. And so things that worked really well that did no longer work. So please never do this because it doesn't work. So weirdly, what one of the things that worked really well was, uh, you know, years ago there were, you could get it, you could get tools that would allow you to join thousands of forums and create fake profile pages. And within the profile, uh, now I had a tool that basically allowed me to only do this for for uh, forums that had 
do follow links. You could put do follow links in the about section of a profile page. And then you would, uh, <laughs> people are going to be thinking, this guy is the worst human being in the world. And then what you would do is you would link to, you would, you would have one link that pointed to your site from each about page. And then you would have a link that pointed to another forum for about page. So imagine like a ring of thousands of profile pages on forums that pointed to each other and then pointed to your site. Now, wait, wait, I'm not finished. And then step back and imagine that I also, and then you could also create uh, automated set up blogs thousands at a time and extract content from YouTube and all these different places and create like these automated garbage blog posts. And then you would link all of those to the forums, right? So you create another adder circle ring to your, for that, that I did that for my own sites, affiliate marketing, no longer do that. Um, I could rank something in a very short amount of time, like months for competitive keywords. The other thing that worked really well was, I think this still probably does work, is that you could build your own private link network. And the way you would build that is, it's interesting in GoDaddy that if you host a site, let's say this site here, everyonehatesmarketers.com, and you hadn't you haven't renewed that um, within the last 30 days before you renew it, it goes into an auction model and people are actually bidding on your domain. And if you renew that, then the auction model closes. But if you don't renew that, I can buy your site because uh, you forgot to renew it or you just don't want it anymore. And then I can just go into archive.org and recreate your site. So Google doesn't know any difference. It's like, oh, your site went down, it's back up again. <laughs> but now I own the site and I can do it. I can start to link two things and that worked really well. It used to work really well. I lost a lot of money because I got the entire thing de-indexed overnight. Uh, so yeah, so that's what I mean. Like I didn't know marketing back in the day. I just knew how to create networks, basically weird networks of things that link to each other. I love it. I think that's the best example so far on the show. <laughs> like we waited for the 90s, ninth episodes. <laughs> To reach this level of hackiness and shadiness, so well done. But like I don't you see, that. there is there is a, there is a, a bright future for people doing that now. Like and Akiran is is a good place at HubSpot, so you can you can well, recover from being shady, right? Yeah, I learned. I learned. Yeah, I, I, so I, I learned that I should learn about marketing, right? And I should, uh, and that's where I came to the conclusion is like shit. Actually, when Google started to actually make this stuff not work, I realized that I actually had no real value to to give to a company. So I should really learn how to do real marketing. So let me ask you uh, three last questions that I always ask my guests towards the end of the podcast. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Good question. I think that if you can understand platforms, right, if you can actually, if, and I don't think that's a really great answer because it's not like learn search, be good at data analytics, but I think understand how platforms work and how to utilize them for your own uh, company's growth. So like search is a platform, Facebook is a platform. So generally, if you can dissect a platform and figure out how to grow through that platform better than anyone else, I think that's a good way to to stay relevant. Uh, and that means being deeply curious about how things work. Makes sense. What are the top three resources you'd recommend listeners? Could be books, conferences, podcasts, anything. Yeah, I don't have, so this maybe talks to the, maybe you, you have a good answer to this as well. I, this maybe just talks to how like fragmented content is and that what I would do is I would build a list of smart people on Twitter and see the stuff that they read. I would, I would try to talk to people, like really talk to people, actually not do what all of us introverts do and just read their stuff. I would try to have, you know, a couple of conversations a month with actually people who are in your space. A book I read that I don't think is relevant for everyone that I one of my favorite books I've read in the last 12 months is The Platform Revolution because I'm very interested in networks and marketplaces because they're going to eat the world. So that's one book I recommend. Podcasts, uh, I, I like obviously aside from this podcast, 
you can you don't have to yeah, say that. Yeah, no, no, I I you've got you've got stellar guests and obviously based in Ireland, so have to support the Irish Irish uh things that come from Irish. And then yeah, so the, the I think the HubSpot Growth podcast is good. Uh, I'm a big fan of Noel Kagan. His podcast is good. So, a lot of good stuff for people to 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 get. What about yours? I'm trying not to be a shameless uh, marketer. Yeah, so we um so I run the Growth TLDR.com podcast or Growth TLDR podcast and so yeah, we try to talk to people who are in product or growth and uh, CEOs and whoever will come on the podcast and tell us how to do to to grow companies. Can't wait to be invited. I'm only joking, man. Uh, where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you outside of the podcast? Yeah, LinkedIn. Uh, I also Twitter, but uh, generally LinkedIn is a really great place to connect, share ideas. I generally accept everyone unless you're you look mental. Uh, and then <laughs> and then uh, Twitter as well. Search Brat on Twitter. I picked my name Search Brat like before I ever thought about what. Uh, what that name is going to be. I was the name of like an old consultancy I had. Um, never changed it. So it's a very weird name. I, I know. Well, with the answer you gave about the black hat techniques, I think it, <laughs> I think it fits. <laughs> yeah. So Kieran, uh, thanks again uh, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Louis, I, I appreciate it. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns- unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. 
Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.